Hey everybody, this is Mr. Fox of the I Refuse Podcast. I'm here to actually talk about something that recently happened. Um, we've lost, or when I say we, I mean the culture has lost a formidable member, an icon, a legend the recent passing of DMX, a.k.a. Earl Simmons. And I have to admit that the news gutted me for a multitude of reasons. A, because he's been such a huge force for me as a music listener and avid hip-hop and rap Connoisseur. I've been a huge rap fan since the mid to late 80s um, when I first heard the message for the first time. Uh, secondly, him being a survivor and um, warrior of drug addiction and childhood trauma. There are certain parts of his story, especially those two things, that resonate with me. Myself, not being a user of drugs, but being the son of an addict. And watching his journey throughout the last 15, 20 years with not only drugs, but also just kids his mom, um, his ex-wife, while still managing to function and continue to understand and know his relationship with God and know and understand his relationship with faith and hope and realizing that the past five or so years that despite his his run-ins with the law, his troubles with society, he, he manages to bounce back and look healthy and be coherent and be in sync with all the good that's around him. I know the past couple of weeks or so, I had watched his uh, interview with um, Noriega on Drink Champs and watching the entire one and a half, two hours of the interview as one rap icon interviews another who are not only friends in music, but actually friends personally. Uh, There's a mutual, watching the mutual respect between the two and what having a, a bird's eye view of his experience growing up in Yonkers, growing up in the streets, his uh, complicated and abusive relationship with his mom, and often feeling emotionally that you're no good, that you're less than, that there's no hope for you. Yet and still, 
finding his way into being such a force of nature and a force in music, a force in movies, and being a voice for those that are the underdog in society that that don't have people in their corner, that feel like they're not being heard, and making countless hits and countless um, cuts, influential cuts and features on other people's records that just have forged this line, this avenue that you could be grimy and you can be dark and you can be vulnerable in rap music and hip hop and stay true to who you are. You know, when DMX debuted in 1998, there wasn't anybody like that since the days of Tupac. And the one thing that set DMX apart from other acts at that time or since or before was that he stayed true to himself. He wasn't a studio gangster. He wasn't a record label gangster. He wasn't a an industry plant or an industry mole. Um, everything that he wrote, if he actually wrote it down, I believe... He, uh, he also was able to do songs off the top of his head. But everything that he rapped about, he lived. Um, everything that he talked about, he walked. Um, and along the way, he still managed to have a persona outside of music. Um, if you've ever watched like his Breakfast Club interviews or any of his interviews before or since. The the guy has a lot of personality. Um, I believe at one point he had his own reality TV show. And I remember it was on MTV and there were, he had a really deep love for riding um, those motorbikes, those four-wheelers. And I remember one episode it was that was him that was all he did the entire episode and it was out in the desert and it was at nighttime and it was a lot of night vision but another thing is that you know he was definitely a spur of the moment kind of guy from the stories he told one particular instance when he was doing a movie with Jet Li believe it was uh, from the cradle to the grave they would stop production so he can go drive off and play with drones all day or play with helicopter toy helicopters all day. Um, it's fascinating to me. That story stands out for me for the sheer fact that despite the traumatic experiences in his childhood, he still found time to be full of joy, to have fun, and to not take life so seriously. And for me, you know, another reason why his passing guts me so deep is because in the back of my mind, I always hoped that he would come out 
of a drug addiction um, healthy and fine and ready for this comeback. Um, On his Drink Champs interview that he did with Noriega, he mentioned that he had signed with Def Jam again, and he had an album coming out, which I'm sure is going to come out soon. Um, they had, and he listed some of the features, and I was just like, oh, this is going to be a fire-ass album. And even though DMX experienced most of his, um, well, the majority of his success and his acclaim with his first five albums, he never stopped releasing material. Um, it's unfortunate, though, that the impetus for the shift in, I guess, popularity started um, the moment Jay-Z became the president of Def Jam. And what DMX said was, you know, we did the album... We picked the single, did the music video, and now you're telling us, from the label, you're telling us that you don't know, and then not too long after that, you come out of retirement, and you're doing music again. Okay, I understand. You want to eliminate the competition. Which, if you look at it, that makes a lot of sense, because... At one point or another, um, Jay-Z and DMX, you know, outside of Eminem, were pretty steady with sales and popularity uh, from the mid-90s to the early 2000s, right? And, you know, DMX had a spinoff of rappers, you know, Ja Rule, and nobody was really coming close to Jay-Z. And Jay-Z, the, another parallel to Jay-Z and DMX is that they were the springboard for major record labels. Jay-Z had Rockefeller, DMX had Rough Riders. Um, and by the way, if you have a chance... Uh, be sure to check out the Rough Rider Chronicles that came out last year. So that whole thing made a lot of sense. And at one point or another, before all three of them made it big, um, they were supposed to be a super group. Jay-Z, DMX, and Ja Rule called Murder, Inc. But due to Jay-Z and DMX having a falling out, it never came to be. And then, of course, you know, Jarvel went on to do his own thing. However, um, you know, when you look back at DMX's life, uh, his beginnings, and you look at the, the way he was the last five or ten years, you can't help but have felt sorry for him. Um, And even withstanding that, like no matter what was going on personal, personally, or however the media tried to 
portray him and play him as. Once he got on that stage, it was it was good to go time. For example, when Bad Boy went on their tour back in 2016, uh, they had a stop at the Verizon Center in Washington, D.C. And, you know, everybody that was tied to the golden era of Bad Boy uh, performed. You know, Total, Carl Thomas, 112, Black Rob, Faith Evans, The Locks, uh, B.I.G., and footage, of course. Um... Lil' Kim was there and performed. And, you know, at the top of the show, Puff had been hinting that there was an energy coming, right? And we didn't know what the hell to expect. And, you know, leading up to that show, I remember watching, like, footage of other shows on the tour. Uh, The huge... Stop being New York City, of course. You know, on that show, you know, he had the the lineup that I mentioned. But he also had uh, Nas came out, Jay-Z came out, Mary J. Blige came out, which was huge. And I was like, dang, I wish I was there. So we're like, we don't know who the hell is going to come out. And, you know, the entire hour and a half, two hours, two and a half hours was off the hook. I mean, everybody still had it. Um, So, you know, at some point, there was a timer on the big screen at the top of the show. Um, It started counting down, and then the show would start, and then the timer showed up again. And Puffy came out and said, yo, y'all remember that energy I told y'all that was coming? Well, it's here. And it got quiet for a couple of seconds. And then the first few notes or keys of What's My Name started playing. And I fell the entire fuck out. Um, I immediately started jumping up on the seats. And me and the guy that was standing in front of me in the next row started, like, jumping up and down, jumping around, and getting physical like we were in a marsh pit. And DMX came out. DMX performed uh, What's My Name, uh, Party Up In Here, What These Bitches Want, um, Get At Me Dog. He performed Rough Riders Anthem. Uh, Stop Being Greedy. Uh, What else? He performed... He performed at least eight or nine other songs. Um, I'm trying to think if he performed 24 Hours to Live with Mace. Um... Yeah, I think Mace was there as well. But, I mean, for the show to already be great, 
because I mean every act that was up there took me back and it's a the entire venue back but of all people like for us to be treated to DMX who like you feel his energy and his energy translates through his music and his music videos but in person it's like no words um he elevated that whole room, the whole venue, and he took us out of there. Um, and he sounded good. He looked good. He he was on. I mean, it was like it. It's something so monumental when you see a performance, whether it's mute movies or music or Broadway play or a dance number. Uh, uh, just uh, overall performance of someone who is portrayed negatively, who you know is, and you're aware of their trials and tribulations personally, for them to like perform and you just don't think of any of that. You just totally forget all of that. DMX is one of those people. It's like, he gets up there, there's no, like, indication of an issue, there's no disconnect with the audience, there's no um, detriment to stage presence, or moving, and moving the whole crowd, and taking them somewhere, and to do it at such a time where, you know, people, you know, any other artist's that came out the same time that he did to be forgotten, and you still remember him. Every single word, every single growl, um, every single move, it was amazing. And, you know, you put, you think of VMX if you've never seen, you know, seen him live, or you've kind of moved on and kind of grown up, and you think, well, you know, He's probably no big deal, but everybody in that venue showed him love, and which are true fans of his, and are true fans of what of his contributions to the culture and to the elevation of hip hop. And you know, another thing that sets DMX apart from a Jay Z or a Nelly or an Eminem or an LL Cool J, or a Biggie, or Three Stacks, or an Eminem, is that his contribution is a reflection of who he is. And his talent supersedes any single worldly thing. Um... During his initial run, I want to say the first four or five albums, I mean, it was, there was once upon a time in like high school, I believe I was like 16 in ninth grade when he first came out, and that album was everywhere. People would not shut the fuck up about it. And, you know, I wasn't old enough at the time to get the explicit version. 
like Kmart was still around and they only had what's called the church version, right? Um, which some of some of those uh, amended versions of albums weren't that bad, but it's like with DMX, you got to get the explicit version. You got because that's the only way you can experience DMX. Like you get like a LL Cool J album, okay. You get like a Method Man album or Wu Tang album. All right, because um, some of the some of the words rappers would use in place of the curse words or the explicit words were kind of funny, um, and I get it. But DMX, like to match his cadence and what he's given to you, got to get the explicit version. And I wasn't. It wasn't until his second album, or maybe his third, that I was old enough to get it, get the explicit version. I was just like, oh, this is so much better. Um, you know, a couple years ago, I had had a conversation with a couple of friends of mine, and we had a conversation about DMX albums. Oh, well, what's your favorite? Um, of course, majority of people that you ask are going to go to the first album. It's dark and hell is hot, right? And then, you know, to a lesser degree, people will say it's the second album, Flesh to My Flesh, Blood of My Blood, which is really good. Um, my favorite is, and then there was X, right? Um, so outside of the huge hits, well, on any of his albums, the huge hits, um, there is a certain polish and a certain kind of like a humorous aspect on that album where it's just like this guy is pretty is pretty funny and it's lighthearted and it's party friendly. Um, flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood was a little on the dark side. Um, the first one I like a lot. A little manic, a little dark, a little frantic. Um, but the third one, I was just like, okay, this guy is, is here to have fun. It's not all about death and it's not all about God and it's not all about despair, which to a degree, a lot of people should hear more stories like that to connect more with, you know, the human condition of people. It's not all you know, flowers and butterflies and roses out here. There are actually a lot of people that experience exactly what he's talking about on the second album. And to a larger degree, DMX's career is a testament to persevering against the odds and becoming larger than your circumstances and never losing hope in sight of what matters. Um, was he perfect? No, but you're going to kill yourself or drive yourself crazy or work yourself into the ground looking for perfection. And here you have DMX who shows up in the room and says, this is what I am. It's not polished, it's not pristine, 
but this is what I am, and this is who I am. Um, and just know that I'm trying. And it takes a lot of courage and a lot of bravery to express that, to show that, and to keep trying at this crazy ride called life. It's just very unfortunate that his life ended so young and so early. Um, And I don't think at one point in time people realize how many lives he's touched not only as an artist or a musician, but as a person. He's he's preached, he's prayed, he is truly anointed. At one point late last week, I was saying to a friend of mine, like, I really feel like me still being full of hope, saying, I really feel like he is going he is going to experience what Tracy Morgan experienced where he is in a coma, he's out of it, he's not physically here or mentally here, but he is going to meet the man upstairs and he is going to come back and truly be knees deep into life and move differently and speak differently and see things that you and I can't see or feel things that you and I have yet to feel and experience. I remember not too long after... Tracy Morgan's surviving the Walmart accident, the Walmart truck accident, and he was still very much the same Tracy Morgan, um, but just a tad reserved, a little more withdrawn, but still as transparent and selfless with his experience and talking about his experience. I remember on one of his interviews, not too long after he had bounced back, he um, he went to the Breakfast Club and he essentially walked them through what he experienced when he was in that coma. And while ex- explaining his experience, he dropped many gems and about the importance and the relationship with God and how you should never take this life for granted. 
and how valuable life is. And there was no community and I was hoping or sensing that DMX was going to come back like that. However, things did not work out that way. At some point during the conversation I had with a friend of mine, we were talking about the particulars of, you know, how he was uh, under or was without oxygen to his brain for an hour and how by the late Friday, Saturday, you know, there was word that he was he had little to no brain activity and he remained in the vegetative state. And that's when I had to face the reality that even if he was to come back, come out of this, his quality of life will be different. And if there's little to no brain activity, there's probably there's probably nothing that can be done to to bring him back. And it was sad to, to even think that, but we have to be real with ourselves and I think as as a society we have to come to terms with the fact that death is a part of life. And I think because we were conditioned or taught or we've experienced so much loss in our lives that we tend to fear death and fear it so much so that It could uh, it could bring us down and make us depressed. But it's like it's it's nothing we can do about it. It's nothing we can do about it. What we can do is take care of ourselves in the meantime and not take things for granted. Not take people for granted, not take the times for granted, and have fun. You know, DMX may be gone in physical form, but I think the spirit of who he is and what he's contributed to our lives lives in all of us. Those of us that heard the first song he's ever recorded, which is years and years before his debut, Um, because he started rapping in the 80s, uh, building his fan base out of Yonkers, doing ciphers and doing rap battles, essentially paying his dues, which is another thing that sets him and those class of rappers apart from everybody else. Um, at one point, he had battle rapped Jay-Z. Um, and I believe he won. 
And it's unfortunate that during his life, that not only was he traumatized and thrown out as a child, but like in business, he he was sought out after by people that were looking for an artist to get their label off the ground. And when he busted his ass to make that happen, and that door came open for other artists to come through and eat, the people that were at the head of those that label were looking at him crazy when he felt he deserved a cut of the earnings and the cut of the label. And that's just very weird to me because you came to him in the early 90s, late 80s because of his talent. And through his relationship that you have with him, he, you know, you got a relationship with Irv Gotti, you got a relationship with Leroy Cohen, you got a relationship with Russell Simmons, you got a relationship with Rick Rubin, you have all these different relationships. You have a relationship with Puff Daddy, who have a relationship with Jay-Z. Um, everybody ate really well off of the talents of DMX. Um, by producing for DMX, Irv Gotti got his own label, got a Murder, Inc. from Russell Clemens, who uh, at some point took, made an avenue for, you know, Ja Rule and Ashanti and Charlie Baltimore and Vita and Lil Mo and J-Lo make all these hits for like six or seven summers, right? Then you have Def Jam, who, you know, they had they had Al Cool J um, carrying them on his back for about 20, 20 or so years, right? Um, then at some point in the early 90s, you got Method Man, Red Man, Keith Murray, Eric Sermon, EPMD, uh, relationship with all of them, you have most of them on their on your label, right? And then the production, like they for they you know they forge a relationship with Rock Riders because of DMX. Um, the two founders of Rock Riders has a nephew, Swiss Beats. Swiss Beats comes in. In those uh, formative years, to produce some things for DMX, his production hits harder than the in-house, the other in-house producers. There's an issue there, jealousy. Swiss Beats becomes a name. 
off of that. And then you have the locks who were managed by Rough Riders, just like DMX was. Sounds with Puffy, they do okay. DMX doesn't feature on their first album. They ask for a release from their contract from Puff, Puffy and then sign with Rough Riders. Do really well, right? You have Eve. Eve uh, did her first song feature on the Roots uh, Things Fall Apart album. Uh, the first single, You Got Me, she was on that. She was on another song off of that album. Um, at one point, she did that, I believe, while she was signed to Aftermath. That falls apart. She goes, I think she shipped for like two months. Miz tells her, well, what are you doing here? She gives it up. Um, wraps her way into Rough Riders. Signs with them. You have Dragon that signs with Rough Riders. Again, who would pay attention to Rough Riders without DMX? Who would pay attention to Irv Gotti as a producer without DMX? Who would pay attention to Ja Rule as a rapper without DMX? Who would really keep Jay-Z going with his third album without DMX? Um... So watching Rough Riders Chronicles, like, knowing what I know, because most of that stuff I lived, like, listening to the music back in my early, late teens um, and early 20s, like, there's at least seven degrees of separation that connects DMX to Jay-Z to Irv Gotti to... Puffy, to Rough Riders, um, like if it wasn't for DMX, Rough Riders wouldn't have had the run that they've had, and every producer that has either produced under the moniker or produced for DMX and has had a relationship with DMX wouldn't be the names that they are now. And it's just a sad story that in business, um, we tend to forget or get greedy or uh, at some point when we get to a certain level, just forget how we got there or who got you there. And, you know, watching Rough Rider Chronicles, uh, I watched the first episode, and then I watched clips after that. It didn't say, or DMX didn't say, how much he was asking for or what, or what the exact percentage was. Um, but for grumblings... around Rough Riders as to what, you know, is felt he deserves. And they're, like, confused or bewildered or 
just not able to comprehend. That's the shit that I'm talking about. Now, granted, you know, Rough Riders, I believe, is either defunct or kind of has slowed down since everybody's kind of moved on to other things. Eve's not rapping anymore. Um, Although she had a decent run for about six years. Then she went into TV and movies, you know, barbershop. Eve show, it was cute the first one or two seasons when it was on UPN. Um, And I believe she was on the talk for a while. But, like, she kind of faded after she got with the, the billionaire club English dude who she's now married to, um, kind of just transitioned into other things, kind of did the Queen Latifah thing. Um, and then you have the locks that still rap. Um, Jadakiss is still doing his solo career. She Glitch is kind of under the radar, like he's always been. And Styles P is kind of here and there. Um... But it's it's just interesting to me that, you know, in life, you know, for those of us that take care of people, know what it's like when it's not reciprocated. And we don't ask, we don't demand. A lot of us, because it's tacky um, to even have that, hu- that hubris to even ask that kind of thing. Um, but damn, not even a thank you. Not even a call back. Not even a thumbs up emoji for, you know, the work that went into getting you to where you are. That's another part about DMX that I can resonate with. And, you know, I know for some people it's hard to, or it's, it's, you're unable to see the positive from what the media has been showing you for so many years. Just the antics, whether told or unproven, um, the stories you've heard about him trying to get to the airport and impersonating a traffic cop pulling over a guy with a siren and all this stuff and having all the kids. It's just a man that's living life. And it's another aspect that I want to share with everybody is how chaotic the media can be um, in their portrayal of black men, here you have someone like DMX who is studying his career and the media makes it a point to only focus on or show you the negative, whether true or unfounded or alleged. There's this narrative, overarching narrative, trying to portray... they did where they were trying to portray DMX as bipolar, as unstable, as crazy, as a man with mental health issues, as a raging 
drug addict, an out of control black man, any incendiary black male stereotype you can think of, they've tried to lodge at this man as he walked on this earth. And even as the man was in a coma the past two weeks, the New York, uh, white woman from the New York Times felt it, her due diligence, felt it her, her white privilege right to share in a, a New York Times article that she wrote a list of homes that DMX has lost in his lifetime. The relevancy to the current situation at the time there is none. The relationship to what he's going through at that time, there wasn't one. But even as this man was essentially in his deathbed, the media still felt the need to share these things to, sh- to portray him in a negative light. Um, it's right up there to the kind of thing to similar practices they take when a black man loses his life to, I know a black man loses his life to a white police officer. Uh, from the little things such as using a mugshot photo to go with an article about, you know, his guy's death to the write-ups that the news uses. Um, They even do this in, like, the NFL draft or the sports draft where, you know, the news is such-and-such team has drafted such-and-such player. And in the write-up on the screen, one of the bullets read is the son of a former drug addict. What the fuck does that have to do with the sports? What the fuck does that have to do with the college that he went to or the high school he graduated from or the statistics, the player statistics that he has performed in his sports career leading up to the draft? It's it's the little nuances that the media, you know, plays with in portraying uh, a major black male, a key black male uh, figure in the world. Uh, and then it extends to when a white police officer is, or a white resource officer or a white security guard that has killed a black person, unarmed black person, goes to trial and the prosecution or the officer or the white person's lawyer when cross-examining people, witnesses, friends of the deceased has a line of questioning that plays up to the angry black male narrative and they word their questions in a way that 
tries to incite or ignite something in the witness on the stand uh, that would upset them or make them emotional, make them angry, just to point at them and say, see, there it is. And there's that, that rage and there's that, uh, there's that, uh, you know, they said things over and over during the course of their witnessing a white police officer put his knee on the neck of a black man. The things that they've said to this police officer in the passion of the moment, which is absolutely human. Here you have like six to eight people or so that are witnessing armed white police officers essentially murder an unarmed black man that was compliant throughout the entire accost accosting. And, you know, the thing lately has been, you know, people that are defending police officers being of the argument that those that are against police officers are for black lives and that black the Black Lives Matters moment, movement, movement is the real danger. And they try to imply that several times over in new, nuanced ways in legal proceedings, criminal proceedings, especially when addressing a black person on the stand. Um, Or they try to make a black witness appear ignorant or less than, less than capable of remembering or less than capable to understand what exactly is going on around them at that particular moment. To imply that what they were told or what they heard is not is not the case. And it's those little things that I've witnessed in the past nine or ten years, starting with the um, the Mike Brown case and the Trayvon Martin case leading up now to the Derek Chauvin murdering George Floyd case. And it's those kind of things that, you know, people, other people that are white, um, that are of the law and of civil proceedings and criminal proceedings don't pick up on, or they do pick up on them, but they ultimately decide, which is often the end game, that the police officer is let off the hook. The only one exception is the guy that murdered Walter, I think it was Walter Williams. Um, and I think 
the only reason why that was able to stick is because of the video footage that everybody saw of him stopping to chase the Walter and shooting him in the back, I think, six times and trying to plant or uh, fix the scene to look like his life was in danger. Um, of course, that video footage was by happenstance. Um, and the guy had no idea that he was being taped. But over 90% of the time, you can have video footage or not, and just testimony of people that were there, and the police officer gets off. And we're left disgruntled and unheard and under the impression by other people's opinions that you guys are free. You guys are not enslaved anymore, but it's the problem. Well, this is the problem. Think of Rodney King and Latasha Harlins had video footage of police brutality and murder. And police officers get a slap on the wrist or the Korean owner of the store that pulled out a sawed-off shotgun after the girl had put the orange juice on the counter, the same orange juice she thought Natasha was going to steal, and shoot the girl point-blank range. Until we are free and equal, we are not free. And we have yet to see equality because we're not seen as equitable to white people. People still see us as property. And until that viewpoint changes, things will never change across the board. You know, DMX is not perfect. DMX is just as flawed as you and I. And he's shown us so much more than I can even put into words about the struggles of those that come out of the dirt and come out of the mud and have a story to share and a life to share and artistry to share. While we live, try to live through this dark and crazy time and dark and crazy life. DMX is to be respected and valued for all that he is. For the very least, trying to live and trying to survive and staying close to God. He should not be judged. He should not be admonished. He should be memorialized to the depth and to the gravity to, as to the love that we have for him and what he has given us. 
DMX is in pain no more. And he is free of hurt. And he is with God now. And he lives in all of us. So let's love him for the music. Let's love him for what he's given us. Let's love him for being the imperfect person he is. For we are all imperfect. This is the I Refuse Podcast, and this is Mr. Fox. This is for the life and the legacy of DMX.